Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. everyone and welcome to the history of england podcast episode one and incidentally it's also episode one of the first series within the history of england which is on anglo-saxon england you might like an overview of the history of england podcast in its entirety by the way and if so can i please recommend the previous episode very short minute trailer called all about the history of england in that there's a very quick breakdown of the periods available to you all so far Today's episode, then, is all about the sources that we have for Anglo-Saxon England, particularly the settlement period, and also the changing ways in which historians have interpreted the Anglo-Saxons over the years. But, firstly, it is also partly to set the scene for the next 31 episodes, which forms the series within the History of England, which covers what I resolutely continue to call Anglo-Saxon England, whatever the latest enthusiasm for the correct nomenclature is. It is true that people themselves would only use the term occasionally and then only from the 9th century, but they would have been even more confused by the concept of the proposed alternatives of late antique or early medieval, so I'll just stick with what we all know and understand. So the period starts in the 5th century and it ends rather abruptly around tea time on the 14th of October 1066, one of the more famous dates in English history. I should warn you, by the way, that the numbering of the episodes is all rather confusing because I rewrote all of these a few years after my first effort. Sorry about that. The originals are held in a vault somewhere, protected by armed guards, so you can never hear them. Today's episode focuses on the sources we have available and the historiography, and then we spend one short episode on Roman Britain. Obviously, that's a scandal. But the aim is really to understand where we start rather than cover all of Roman Britain in one episode. 
then the next view up to 1.12 or up to 4, depending on the original numbering, are all about the arrival of the Anglo-Saxons, the way they settle in Britain, the new kingdoms they establish, and their conversion to Christianity. It is a fascinating period as a new society, culture and economy emerges. By the end of it, we have a pattern, politically speaking. We have a patchwork of four main kingdoms sharing a cultural heritage over which the Mercian kingdom in the Midlands has become dominant under a man called King Offa. This world, though, is blown apart in the 9th century by the first wave of Viking invasions, which reaches its limit with the great heathen army in the late 9th century, when the Vikings had now come to stay, not just to raid. And what will become England became within an ace of being Daneland. How an alternative future emerges under the leadership, not of Mercia, but of Wessex, of a unified English king, is a subject of episodes 1.13 to 1.19 or 5 to 10 under the old numbering. What follows is the history of the mature Anglo-Saxon state that we can begin to call England. It enjoys a brief golden age under the likes of Athelstan and Edgar the Peaceable, but the world is shattered again by the second and this time successful wave of Viking invasions and the internal struggles of overmighty subjects within England. We spent 12 episodes on all of that and bring the series to an end on Senlac Hill in episode 1.13 or 22, and the next series then moves on to the Norman and Angevin period, when England is essentially just one part of an Anglo-French empire between 1066 and 1215. OK, I hope that gives you an overview of the series. By the way, when I replaced those first 20 episodes with my new version, as I just mentioned a minute ago, I did it gradually in a separate podcast called the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Now, if you fancy finding out a bit more about how the Anglo-Saxon state emerges from a social and economic perspective, then you might want to look it up because I have published a new nine-part series called The Anglo-Saxons, Life, Landscape and Lordships. That series came from something I did originally for members back in 2017, which I have updated. OK, so let us start this series now, as we mean to go on. Today's episode then focuses on the sources that we have available and the historiography, and then we spend one very short episode on Roman Britain, which is obviously a scandal. But the aim is really to understand where we start. The next few episodes up to one point. 1.12 or 4 on the original numbering are all about the arrival of the Anglo-Saxons, the way they settle in Britain, the kingdoms they establish and the conversion to Christianity. It is a fascinating period as a new society, culture and economy slowly emerges. By the end of it, we have a pattern, politically speaking. We have a patchwork of four main kingdoms sharing a cultural heritage over whom the Mercian kingdom of the glorious Midlands has become dominant under a man called Offa. This world is blown apart in the 9th century by the first wave of Viking invasions, which reaches its height with the great heathen army in the late 9th century, when the Vikings came not just to raid, but to stay this time and conquer. And what will become England came within an ace of being Daneland. How an alternative future emerges under the leadership not of Mercia, but of Wessex, of a unified English kingdom, is the subject of episodes 1.13 to 1.19, or 5 to 10 under the old numbering. What follows thereafter is the history of the mature Anglo-Saxon state that we can begin to call England. 
It enjoys a brief golden age, under the likes of Athelstan and Edgar the Peaceable, but this world is again shattered by a second and this time successful wave of Viking invasions and the internal struggles of overmighty subjects. We spent 12 episodes on all of that and bring the series to an end on Senlac Hill in episode 1.31 or episode 22 under the old numbering. And the next series then moves on to the Norman and Angevin period when England is essentially just one part of an Anglo-French empire between 1066 and 1215. That is series two. Okay, I hope that gives you an overview. By the way, when I replaced the first 20 episodes on my new version back whenever it was, I did it gradually in a separate podcast called the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. That is still alive, actually. If you fancy finding out a bit more about how the Anglo-Saxon state emerges from a social and economic perspective, then you might want to look it up because I've just started publishing a new nine-part series called The Anglo-Saxons, Life, Landscape and Lordship. It comes from a series I originally did for members back in 2017, which I have updated. Okay, so let us start this series now as we mean to go on. Our objective in this first real episode is to set the scene in two ways. First of all, to look at the textual sources we have available to us for the period leading up to the Viking invasions of the 9th century. Secondly, to talk a bit about the historiography of the period, how it has been perceived over the ages. So, if you are all sitting, ironing, cycling, commuting, running comfortably, I shall begin. I'd like to start with a mild piece of light ranting. The Dark Ages. I love the phrase the Dark Ages. It's a phrase first hinted at by a 14th century historian called Petrarch and finally coined in the early 17th century by somebody called César Baronius. But it's a phrase wholly despised and deplored by generations of fun-sucking historians and indeed podcasters actually who tell us that it is most unfair on the inhabitants of those times though I seriously, seriously doubt they care and more importantly of course that it is misleading. And instead I am instructed to refer to the period on which I am about to embark as the early Middle Ages. As if Middle Ages wasn't an odd enough term. And look, these ages, well, they are dark. I mean, it's really, really hard to know what's going on. Plus, in England at least, with the withdrawal of the Roman Empire, it's a time of immense change and dislocation. It's not surprising that medical insurance wasn't available because it was a time often accompanied by endemic and constant violence. But the main thing is that from the 5th to the 9th centuries, the amount of textual material we have is frankly a disgrace. Not just chronicles and contemporary history, but really any kind of written record. So in the words of Paul, we see through a glass darkly. Rant over, that takes me to describe what evidence we do have and something of the fascinating historiography of the period. Before that, a quick note about nomenclature, so we don't get too confused, though it's reasonably traditional. Essentially, for the 4th to the 6th centuries, I will talk about the existing Celtic peoples who inhabited the majority of Britain, speaking Brythonic languages as British or Britons. So, let's start with Gildas, a British monk who ended up dying in Brittany. It used to be thought that he came from Scotland, but actually he was probably writing from southwest England or Wales. Gildas probably wrote his main work around 543, though there are arguments even about that, and estimates that run from 490 to 520. 
His main surviving work is called On the Ruin and Conquest of Britain. It's not really a history or a work intended to inform later generations. It's more of a bitter rant, a sermon, a lecture, briefly describing the history of Britain from the time of the Romans' departure and then criticising the British kings and clergy for their failings and sins, which has led to the dreadful punishment that is the Adventus Saxonum, the coming of the Saxons. He only uses history as a stick to beat his people with to demonstrate the link between their sins and the disaster. It's from Gildas that we learn of names that are semi or possibly wholly legendary, and which are constantly challenged now. Gildas seems to get many things mixed up. The lack or confusion of dates makes folk tear their hair out. And the fact is that his purpose is not really to give a detailed and accurate history or chronology. Instead, it's to give those responsible for this disaster, as he sees it, a right old tongue-lashing. Gildas himself is evidence, though, of the continuing survival in his time of the Roman tradition of learning. He'd clearly had a Roman-style education, and refers to others as having been similarly educated. There's no doubt also that Gildas, writing close to 150 years after the last legion had left, still felt himself to be part of the Roman world. OK, it's a very British version. Gildas views everything from a British viewpoint, but it is in the Roman tradition nonetheless. And Gildas was not a fan of the Saxons, not a fan at all. Gildas tells a story that sings now with drama and passion, which spoke to my love of history and King Arthur and Rosemary Sutcliffe and all that when I was nubbit knee-height to a grasshopper. Part of the very fabric of history as far as I was concerned, though it has to be said Gildas makes no reference to Arthur. Gildas's story goes, that Roman Britain was beset by barbarians, the Picts from northern Scotland, the Scotty from Ireland. After a few expeditions to restore the borders, the last legions leave, and the remaining British, fighting to survive, appeal desperately to the last effective Roman general in the West, Aetius, with these extraordinarily evocative and dramatic lines. The barbarians push us back to the sea. The sea pushes us back to the barbarians. Between these two kind of deaths, we are either drowned or slaughtered. It was a bad time. According to Gildas, there were enemy assaults and massacres more cruel. The pitiable citizens were torn apart by their foe like lambs by the butcher. Their life became like that of the beasts of the field. And so, in desperation, the British turned to barbarians to defeat the barbarians that attacked them. They turned to the Saxons. But the Saxons, in their turn, turned against the British. As far as Gildas was concerned, the Saxons made the Picts look like Mother Teresa, likening them to wolves, dogs, lions and savage beasts. Nothing more destructive, nothing more bitter has ever befallen this land. But at last, the British found their own leader, a man called Ambrosius Aurelianus, who defeated the Saxons in a massive battle at a place called Mons Bodonicus and created a piece in which Gildas was now writing. This is a story which has proved very resilient and was picked up in large part by the second of our major sources for the period, Bede. Bede was a historian and theologian and without doubt the best source for the period up to his death in 735. 
but bear in mind that as far as the migration is concerned, even Bede is a very remote commentator, writing two to three hundred years after the events. He was a monk, based in the Northumbrian kingdom in the monastery of Jarrow. He was a theologian of European reputation, with over thirty written works to his name. But the one we all focus on is the Ecclesiastical History of the English Peoples. And do note the title. There's plenty of secular stuff in Bede, but his focus is Christianity and its triumph. Also, he's very much the Northumbrian, and this means he has a bias. His focus isn't on the kings south of the River Humber, i.e. most of the Midlands, southern and eastern England. It's on Northumbria. Tends to mean that he's rather dismissive of the other main Anglo-Saxon kingdom with which Northumbria often struggled for supremacy, Mercia, the Anglo-Saxon kingdom to the south, comprising most of the Midlands. Bede feels almost like a modern historian in his critical and analytical approach, but his purpose is not the same as a modern historian. His aim was to record the rise and fate of heresy, to build models of the good Christian ruler and cleric, and to demonstrate the working of God's judgment. There's a line which gives a flavour of his attitude. Bede's been talking about how the late Romano-British nations descended into gross moral turpitude, quote, giving themselves up to drunkenness, hatred, quarrels and violence, they threw off the easy yoke of Christ and invited in the Saxons to fight their battle for them. And Bede then notes, This decision, as its results were to show, seems to have been ordained by God as punishment on their wickedness. So hopefully that makes the point. For Dark Age and medieval peoples, God was an active participant in the world, and when things go wrong, it's probably God's punishment for the failure of the people to follow the straight and narrow. It also illustrates another point, actually, while we're talking about Bede's biases. He had absolutely no time at all for the Welsh. Not because of their rugby talents in this case, but because he considered their church to be following the wrong brand of Christianity at the time. Bede is thoroughly medieval in other ways, devoting much space to miracles, fantastic events, and it's an ecclesiastical history, remember. Much time is devoted to the goings-on of the church and conversion. And, of course, the information he had available to him was limited, diffuse, and no doubt conflicting. As it happens, the monastery at Jarrow had the benefit of a large corpus of original material gathered together by a predecessor. But nonetheless, the gaps are obvious and the gaps are wide. And one of Bede's greatest achievements, actually, was to make sense of all the fragmentary sources he had available to him into one coherent whole. It's Bede that gives us the seminal passage that describes the origin of the Germanic invaders, which, despite all the picking away at it, has remained remarkably resilient. The passage about the Angles, Saxons and Jutes, which we'll come to in a future episode. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Which brings me to the Anglo Saxon Chronicle. This was probably commissioned by King Alfred the Great in the 9th century, and therefore, strictly, I guess I shouldn't be covering it this early but it purports to describe the history of the West Saxons from the very earliest days. It is the most delightful document. Delightful, I accept, 
not being the language of historical study, but nonetheless delightful it is. If you're going to buy any original documents, you need to buy a good edition of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. In its pages, you can read at first hand the history of the West Saxons and Anglo-Saxons. You can read through what they thought their history should have been in the early days. And you can see what the monks that wrote it considered to be really important. It is wonderfully idiosyncratic. If you met the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle in a pub on a Saturday night, half the time you'd wonder if they had the power of speech at all, and other times you'd be begging him to shut up. So, for example, at random. Year 534. Cherdic passed away, and Cunrich, his son, reigned for 26 years. They gave to their two kinsmen, Stuff and Whitgar, the Isle of Wight. Year 535. No entry. Year 536, no entry. Year 537, no entry. Year 538 makes a bit of a comeback. The sun darkened on February the 16th from dawn until nine in the morning. Seriously? Is that all that happened that year that was worth writing down? Now, of course, I'm being extremely unfair, since this is a very early record, written some three to four hundred years after the actual events but it's very well worth noting that in the world of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, religious and natural events held a level of importance that often far outshone the activities of the remote and distant great men. The Chronicle is in fact plural. From one original, the Chronicle was distributed to various monasteries around the kingdom, whence they begin to diverge, in the sense that they add locally relevant content. In a few episodes' time, I will no doubt be waxing lyrical about the qualities of Alfred, but just for the moment to note that while the world around him burned from the Viking invaders, Alfred took the time to build a vision of what the Anglo-Saxon world could be, to give it a shared history and sense of purpose to build the unity of the Anglo-Saxon peoples. So strong was that purpose that the Chronicle kept going for close to a hundred years after the Norman Conquest. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle then is an amazing document which gives the core of our chronology and information right back through the Anglo-Saxon age but, in those early years, it is deeply suspect. Many commentators argue that what we have here is back-formation, the reinvention from a later age of what the Anglo-Saxons thought they'd like their history to have been, to justify the social hierarchy and kingly authority of their present. And remember, its genesis is in recording the success of the West Saxons, the House of Wessex. So a bit like Bede and his Northumbrian bias, at times other kingdoms can look a bit like bit-part players or in the earlier years at least. Nonetheless, with all those caveats, it's an essential and unique source of information, and a bit of a hoot at the same time. There are other sources and bits and bobs. Tacitus in the first century made some commentary on the Germanic tribes. Procopius, the 6th century Byzantine author of The Secret History in the Reign of Justinian, also inserted a chapter from conversations he'd clearly had from a barbarian about Britain. There are some references in later poems, Beowulf, for example. And then there's Nenius. Now, Nenius was a mad Welsh monk who wrote in the late 8th century, although actually the authorship is in doubt. It's a rather difficult source, full of speculative events which make it difficult to sort the wheat from the chaff. But for the most part, it's the genesis of the legends of King Arthur, the fight of the red and white dragon, the tyrant Vortigern, the legend of Emrys. It's good stuff. It's also full of anti-English feeling, which is fine, an honourable Welsh tradition, but until we get to Alfred, 
That's basically a lot as concerns chroniclers. From the 8th century, the Anglo-Saxons begin to write stuff down, and you begin to get those workhorses of history, charters. And with Alfred, you even get a biography, which is an almost unheard-of treasure. But for the 5th to the 9th century, that's pretty much all we have. Now then, in general, I think the Anglo-Saxons get a pretty poor deal in history. There's a poem called William I by Eleanor Farjun, which I have remembered since being taught it at the age of eight, when I was still small and cute, and which, for me, pretty much sums it up. William I was the first of our kings, not counting Ethelreds, Egberts and things. He had himself crowned, anointed and blessed. In 1060, I needn't tell you the rest. The point is, we couldn't even be bothered to list any of the kings and queens before William I. Then there's the outrage. The outrage, ladies and gentlemen, that in 1272 a king comes to the throne called Edward. And what do we call him? We call him Edward I. The first. What? Come on, we've had loads of them before. I mean, really, what is it about the Anglo-Saxons that has made them so ignored? It may have something to do with that Dark Age thing, just the lack of information. But certainly, interest in the Anglo-Saxon period has fluctuated through the centuries. In the immediate aftermath of the conquest, of course, there was all manner of interest. Pretty much in the same way as you get a survey done and look through the title deeds of a new house you're buying, making sure you understand how the place works, what sort of liabilities there are lying around before you decide to rebuild and gut the thing. And although I read all manner of stuff about how there's no national identity in England in the Middle Ages, yada yada, all that stuff, it's quite clear from chroniclers like William of Malmesbury that they felt the pain of the passing and subjugation of their old Anglo-Saxon world. But it didn't take long for the Normans to change the outlook and structure of the new kingdom, and interest, to a degree, faded. Though the new monarchy for many centuries continued to stress continuity with Anglo-Saxon England to bolster their legitimacy. So the cult of Edward the Confessor, who was the penultimate king of Anglo-Saxon England, continued well into the 15th century amongst English kings. But interest faded, and in fact more than faded, began to be something of an embarrassment, a feeling that the Anglo-Saxons had in fact been the baddies rather than the goodies. Now this came from Geoffrey of Monmouth. His history of Britain, completed in the 1130s, was immensely influential, building a narrative based on British sources, from Wales and Cornwall and Brittany, about the history of the British people, that the British people had been founded by Trojans, led by a chap called Brutus, fleeing the destruction of their city by the Greeks, ending with their last great King Arthur, who had held back the tide of the hairy, unwashed and slightly smelly Saxon barbarians until at last he had dissipated into legend along with a bar of soap. This was wildly, wildly popular, and not just as a good read. Although it is a good read, gentle listeners, so while you're nipping down to the local bookshop to pick up your copy of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and taking a cup of tea and a bun while there's no one there to stop you, pick up Monmouth's book too. It is a page-turner. But more surprisingly, Monmouth's book was taken as proper, honest-to-goodness, no-poo history. And so the English, as the English do, kind of appropriated somebody else's history for themselves and identified national pride with Brutus and Arthur. 
you only have to look at folk like Edward I and Edward III and their enthusiastic association of the ideas of chivalry with Arthur and his knights of the round table, who, as you know, would dance whenever they were able, in fact quite indefatigable. So the point is that the poor old Anglo-Saxons had become just the cannon fodder, as it were, for the great British kings, rather than ancestors to be fated and studied. Things didn't really change until the time of Henry VIII, the Reformation and the establishment of the Anglican Church and the Renaissance. And then suddenly folk were all over the Anglo-Saxon age like a rash. The Anglicans were looking for evidence of an earlier, purer church, and even thought they'd found evidence there of some of the key tenets of Protestantism, such as, for example, the rejection of transubstantiation. The Catholics duly responded in kind, and conversely, Bede was stood up as evidence of the purity of Catholicism in Anglo-Saxon England. Meanwhile, Brutus and the Trojan view of British history came under scrutiny from humanists, and with the spirit of critical inquiry, the lack of evidence to support Monmouth's history began to emerge. One example of this was a chap called George Buchanan, who wrote a history of Scotland in the 16th century with the stated aim to purge it of some English lies and Scottish vanity. Of course, he said it in a Scottish accent, but his point was that better, more rigorous critical inquiry was required and cast many doubts over Monmouth's history. But Brutus and the Trojans still had its supporters. The old story died hard. Which brings us to an amusing fellow of Pembroke College at Cambridge University, and I am sorry, I am here deep in digression. So Richard Harvey was a small, aggressive and combative astrologer, theologian and historian, living between 1560 and dying in 1630. Richard wasn't the kind of guy to mince his words in academic debate, by all accounts. And indeed, he rather confirms a view of mine that if you're looking for a life that's really red in tooth and claw, don't join the army, become an academic. Richard's style won him a most vicious adversary called Thomas Nash, who now dubbed him Pygmy Dick, which I'm sure sounded better then than it does now, and called him a blind vicar with decayed eyes, stark blind. The thing that had upset poor Nashy was Harvey's rejection of Aristotelian logic, and illustrating his point by hanging an effigy of Aristotle upside down on the gates of Cambridge with ass's ears on his head. This is not a mistake I'd ever make down the local on a Friday night. Take my advice, folks. Conversations about sex, religion, politics are one thing, but just stay away from Aristotle if you want a quiet evening. So all of that is completely irrelevant and a hideous digression, but there is a point. Richard Harvey continued to fight for the Brutus and Trojan view of English history and gave it out to the poor old Anglo-Saxons, who he said should, quote, lie in dead forgetfulness. But it turned out that Pygmy Dick was fighting a losing battle. By the 18th century, Monmouth and his history of Britain had become what it really is, an inspiration for poets, storytellers and fantasy novelists, but not history. Because now another group had decided to mine the Anglo-Saxon years to back up their beliefs. It was the turn of the parliamentarians in the English Civil War, looking to justify their belief that they had the right to limit the powers of the Crown, a belief shared by George Buchanan, incidentally, in that Scottish history I mentioned, which was written well before the Civil War. 
The focus now was on the origins of institutions of government, customs and laws. And through this process, the Anglo-Saxons, and indeed the wider early Germanic culture, now acquired for themselves a powerful and long-lasting reputation. Scholars came to the view that the common law, parliament, trial by jury, key tenets of English freedoms, had all originated with the Anglo-Saxons. On the continent, scholars were also holding up Germanic culture as lovers of freedom and democracy, and the accepted rubric became that the Anglo-Saxons' superior political traditions had been crushed by the Norman tyranny and repression. And through the 18th and 19th century, that opinion grew and that opinion strengthened. The American colonies, and after the betrayal and outrage of 1776, the United States of America, joined the battle on the Anglo-Saxon side. Thomas Jefferson described the laws and governance in the 8th century as, quote, the wisest and most perfect ever devised by the wit of man. Thomas Paine exhorted Americans to resist British rule so as to avoid them, quote, suffering like the wretched Britons under the oppression of the conqueror. As the 19th century progressed, the Anglo-Saxons reached the high point of their popularity, not just with scholars, but with the great British public too inextricably linked with national pride and confidence as the empire flourished. And, much as I'm a card-bearing, flag-waving, we-love-the-Anglo-Saxons fan-club member, not always in a good way, since the racial element became progressively emphasised. And now it's as much about racial superiority as it was about the supposed superiority of their institutions. The Anglo-Saxon settlement had now become a kind of ethnic cleansing, sweeping away the inferior British stock. The Vikings and Normans were represented as coming from the same strong Nordic stock. The English, it was claimed, were a pure Germanic people. King Alfred became a popular hero, as he should be, incidentally, described by the former Prime Minister Rosebery as the embodiment of our civilization. Whoa! the late 19th and 20th centuries saw some reason and balance come back into the debate. Some of the main pillars of the Anglo-Saxon superiority argument crumbled, as it was pretty conclusively proved that the origins of Parliament lay mainly in the post-conquest era, and the origins of common law conclusively so. Two world wars saw the end of any credible belief in racial superiority, and interest revived in Celtic and sub-Roman history to bring a bit of balance back to life. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. But it was about balance, not about a return to the Dark Ages for the Anglo-Saxons. The quality of scholarship continued to improve. Historian Frank Stenton, for example, produced his classic work in 1943. Equally, the popular view of the free and honest Anglo-Saxons versus the repressive, tyrannical Normans stuck around for a long time. I can remember the 1960s, I think, where there was a programme on telly, Robin Hood and he was positioned as a Saxon fighting Norman oppressors. 
the Sutton Hoo burial in the Second World War years sparked incredible interest, as did, much more recently, the discovery of the Staffordshire Hoard. There were queues to get into the Birmingham Museum to see it, ladies and gentlemen, and you can see it too if you just go to the website at birminghammuseums.org.uk. But mainly, Anglo-Saxon history has become one of the most dynamic and evolving areas of English history. Now, OK, that's something of a claim. But in English history, the early years in particular present unique challenges, as I've mentioned, because of the paucity and difficulty of the textual material. And then along have come modern approaches and techniques in archaeology, archaeogenetics, dating methods, place name analysis, linguistics, numismatism. And these have a disproportionate influence and impact on our understanding of the late Roman and English settlement periods in particular. And as their rigour has improved, the new science has become available, the old preconceptions have been challenged, disproved, reproved again in some cases. It's a right old bun fight out there. Which brings me to the last topic in today's podcast. The battle lines in the period we're going to look at first, the arrival of the English, the English settlements. It's reasonably simple. Until comparatively recently, the story came down to us from Bede, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, and Gildas, and this was the accepted history. So in outline, this was that when the Romans left in 409, the British were assailed on all sides by the Scotty from Ireland and the Picts from Scotland. In desperation, they begged for help from Rome, but there was none forthcoming because Rome had other things to think about. So in 449, they followed that fine old Roman tradition, and they invited the barbarians to come in and fight for them against their other barbarians and war bands from the Germanic tribes, led by two blokes, Hengist and Horsa, arrived on the shores of Kent, clutching their contracts. Hengist, Horsa and the lads fought for the British, and for a while they carried all before them. But when the job was done, before you could say termination clause, Hengist and Horsa turned on the British. They could see a loser when they saw one. And meanwhile they wrote home, and in their wake came hordes more of them. The British, in the words of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, fled the English as one flees fire. Over the next few decades, the invaders overran England, established a series of kingdoms, and pushed the British into the west, into Wales, Devon and Cornwall, or overseas to Brittany. So that's the basic story, and this story was compelling for a number of reasons. This is what the textual materials told us. The sources were difficult, but not impossible. Language and place name evidence seems to strongly support the theory, and Gildas's text strongly implies that it's a catastrophic situation for the Britons. Other sources of evidence like archaeology at the time were difficult, but often supportive. And secondly, because we wanted to believe it. All that stuff about Germanic racial superiority rested on the idea of a mass migration that pushed out the British to be replaced by a new race. Since the 1970s and 80s, a much stronger opposing line has come to the fore. This says that the evidence for a mass migration is just not there and pretty much unbelievable. And within that line, there are many sub-arguments. That yes, smaller numbers came, but they did come with fire and sword and they replaced the existing culture with a new one. While another says, no, it's not like that. It's a much more peaceful process. The word is a culturalization. So what happened in this theory is that the new guys adopted some of the practices of the existing Romano-British inhabitants and they lived side by side 
until Anglo-Saxon culture began to take over. Then another strand of argument is about the timescales. The mass migration theory suggests a relatively short timescale, a cataclysmic event. Others argue this was a much longer process, a gradual thing, which went on for generations. One of the problems is with the enormous complexity of the evidence. Textual, archaeology, dating, numismatism, language, genetics. Just thinking about it, I can feel my brain dribbling out of my ear. But the essential questions we have to consider over the next few episodes and keep firmly in our minds are these. Number one, were the Anglo-Saxon settlements a mass migration or did a significant number of the existing population survive? How quickly did the process happen? Is it in a generation or over a much longer period? And what was the process by which Romano-British culture and language essentially came to disappear and be replaced by an Anglo-Saxon one? Okay, that is it for episode number 1.1 and also for episode number one. Next time, we'll have a whistle-stop tour of Roman Britain, the end of empire, and the emergence for a while of a Romano-Britain that was a series of petty kingdoms seeking to retain something of the life and economy of the world they had known. Part of which will be the use of federate Germanic tribes to keep them safe, who will become a little too much for them to handle. Until then, everyone, thank you so much for listening, good luck, and have a great week.